Welcome to another inspirational message by Pastor Ron Hammonds, Senior Pastor at Golden Triangle Church on the Rock in Beaumont, Texas. For more information about Church on the Rock and Ron Hammonds Ministries, visit cotr.com. Tonight, we're in Acts chapter 26. We are walking through the book of Acts one chapter at a time, and we have been in this, uh, in this particular book for a number of weeks. Probably, I don't know, 32, 33 weeks now. Uh, we started out trying to actually cover each chapter and all the verses in each chapter, but we found out that that was probably going to take till Jesus came back for, you know, uh, to, to get finished with it because there's so much in the book of Acts. And so we started just trying to take a few verses out of each chapter and try to pull some central theme out of each chapter. And uh, we, you know, we have tonight and we have two more of these uh, chapters for us to get finished. And I have to get finished because there are pastors uh, around our nation and around the world that uh, say that they are doing uh, a, a, a series in their churches on Acts and they want to make sure that I get it finished so that they will have enough to talk about. And I don't know exactly what that means, but I do know that if I could find a good one, I'd probably be following it tonight. And uh, so will you open up your hearts to the word tonight? Let me tell you and assure you that tonight is designed by God to change your life forever. Wherever you are coming from and whatever's going on in your life, God has designed this, his word God has designed coming into a place where people are gathered together in the name of Jesus. There's a certain power, there's a certain privilege, but there's a certain power in the church coming together. Whether it's Baptist or Methodist or Church of Christ or Catholic or Episcopalian or Lutheran or you know, Pentecostal or interdenominational, there is a power when people get together in the name of Jesus. And for the most part, in, in, in every congregation, you have a collection of people whose hearts are just yearning to, to be a blessing to God and to, and to be there to worship the Lord and, to, and, and, and just to call upon him. And Jesus said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I will be right in the middle of them. I am so thankful that Jesus is not afraid to show up in the middle of what we're doing. And, uh, you know, tonight is designed by him to change your life forever. There's nothing more powerful that I'm aware of in my life than the word of God. You know, the word of God explains life to me and encourages me and helps me to, to, to guide my life on, uh, you know, down the road of God's will. And it corrects me, it instructs me, it reproves me, it rebukes me, it encourages me, it forgives me, it sets me on, 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 a, on, a, on a right journey in life. But it's not just the words written in that book. It's actually understanding what those words really were intended to mean. Because the word of God, one word from God changes everything. But the Word of God is not the Word of God unless it is the Word of God. Now, don't let that confuse you, but let me go back through it for just a moment. The Word of God is powerful, and it changes things. But the Word of God is not the Word of God unless it is the Word of God. That means this, that it matters very little what the Word of God means to me unless I am accurate in assessing what it meant to God. What his word meant to him, what he meant whenever he said this, is where the power is. 
I can't take the word of God. I, I can't just take a series of these words and put them together and somehow fulfill my selfish ambition using God as some proof text for something that I might want to do. Rather, I need to find out what he meant when he said that, and then I need to follow that as a guide for my life. The Word of God records the history of God working in the lives of men and women and, and generations and nations. It certainly is a record of history, but more than a history, more than just an account of history, the Bible is a roadmap for our lives. Thank God for the history because we need to understand that in order to understand what God uh, intended in his word. But once I find out what he intended, once I get the correct interpretation, then it's necessary that I make application of that in my life. Now, the skill, the art, the method of interpreting scripture is a strange word that we don't use. It's called hermeneutics. Okay? Who in the world ever heard of hermeneutics? It's just a strange word to me. But this hermeneutics is the methodology. It's the how-to of studying the word in order to achieve a correct interpretation. Hermeneutics involves observation, application, and interpretation, okay? And the more that we observe, the, more, the, the, the better off that we can interpret it, and then the better we interpret it, then we can make a better application. When we understand what God meant, when we see what Jesus did in feeding the 5,000, and we understand what he is trying to tell us in that story, uh, uh, his meaning, his purpose for that story, then we can make application of that truth in our life. And once we make application of that truth, then we reobserve it and we can better understand it. Once you do something, you can better understand it. Once you actually uh, go out and witness to someone, you can understand better what he was saying. And once we understand it better, because we tried to apply it, once you, once you try to apply, you know, husbands love your wives, you know, parents don't aggravate your children, you know, once you actually start to apply that in your life, it gives you a better understanding of it. And the better understanding of it gives you a greater application. And then... You know, you can, anyway, it's this great circle called the circle of hermeneutics. I don't mean to bore you tonight, but I want you to know that correctly interpreting the scripture, hermeneutics. If, if the Bible and scriptures were a baseball game, hermeneutics is the rule book. Okay? Does that make sense? If reading the Bible were a game and understanding and interpreting the Bible were a game, then hermeneutics is the rule book by which we follow a proper guide and a sensible pathway to understanding what God meant. Because the Bible is filled with God's Word, and God's Word is powerful. But it's powerful when it is understood and when it is applied correctly. The reason why many people have less respect 
for a scripture is because perhaps they tried to apply it in, in, in a way that God did not mean it and it didn't work. Does that make sense? And when something doesn't work, we end up with less respect for it. And many times we can say, well, it's just not true or it just didn't work. And how many times have you heard someone say, you know, you know, well, you know well, God doesn't love me. You know, I guess God just doesn't love me. Have you heard something like that? Well, we know that's not the truth, but it has become their experience. Perhaps a greater understanding of what love is and what God meant by God so loved the world would help us to make a correct application in our life, correct interpretation and application as we actually observe God loving other people throughout the Word of God. So I, I don't mean to confuse you tonight, but this is important uh, because hermeneutics, the rule book to understanding the Scriptures, demands that we make an observation not just of what is said, but we need to know who said it. And we need to know who it was spoken to. You know, not everything you read in the Bible, not, God didn't say everything you read in the Bible. There are some people that said some things, and God says you're wrong. You don't want to read the one <laughs> thinking that it's the Word of God, and God later says, you know, I have this against you. You have spoken wrongly of me. I mean, there uh, He's telling a story, and sometimes in the middle of the story, he'll say somebody else said this, and it'll be a scripture. And if all you do is just read that scripture, you're thinking God said that, and all the time God didn't say that, somebody else said that. And if you keep reading, you'll see where God said he, he said that, but that wasn't right. I mean, you, you do need to understand the whole story. You need to know who was speaking. You need to know who they were speaking to. You need to know when they were speaking, the history that led up to that, and what was trying to be accomplished when that was spoken. So in understanding Acts 26 tonight, or in understanding any passage you're going to read, it is important to understand who said it, why did they say it, who did they speak it to, what were they trying to accomplish when they said it. Because then we can make correct application of it in our life. So let's just step back just a moment as we're approaching Acts 26 and look at who said it, why they said it. Before we see what they said, let's see who said it, why they said it, who they said it to, what the uh, current affairs of that, of that moment was so we can better understand then what was said, and then we can better apply it to our life in a correct fashion. Does this make any sense? I know I'm going fairly deep, but it's Wednesday night, okay? This is not Sunday morning. It's not the, you know, bless me, feed me, heal me group, okay? This is Wednesday night. You're here to, 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 to just go a little deeper, to get a little meat, to, you know, okay, this is, this is, I mean, you came on a Wednesday night. Shame on you. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to teach you something, Okay? I'm not just going to give you some milk and cookies. Milk, you want milk and cookies? Come back Sunday. I'll give you milk and cookies. Okay? Because that's the 5,000. Jesus never said anything to the multitude except bless me, feed me, heal me. That's all he ever said to the multitude. But he took those who were closer to him and he said, eat my flesh, drink my blood. He even took uh, those who were close to him and he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Man, you don't want to say that to a visitor on Sunday morning. You know what I mean? So Wednesday nights are fair game. All right? So go with me here, okay? Not trying to tickle you. I'm trying to teach you. All right. 
So let's look at just a little bit here in, in, in history. There are going to be four characters in chapter 26. The first character is going to be a governor, brand new governor of the Judean province, a Roman governor called Festus. He's brand new. He's replacing a guy named Felix. We read about him last week. Felix had to go back to Rome because all the Jews were complaining that he was not governing fair. And when he got back to Rome, they were there to complain against him, and he almost lost his head. So here is Festus, the brand new governor. He's in the town of Caesarea, and this brand new governor does not want to make the Jews mad. Okay? Because he doesn't want to end up back there in Rome in danger of getting his head cut off. Nero is a pretty tough guy. A second character we're going to see is the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul has been under arrest in Caesarea, this Roman port city. It was the capital of the providence of Judea. And the Apostle Paul has been under arrest in that city for two years. A third character we're going to see is a man named King Agrippa. Now, King Agrippa is... Uh, this is Agrippa II, by the way, if you care, and I doubt that you do. But uh, if you happen to go back or you're Googleizing me, Googleize me and you'll see. This means, uh, this means that this Agrippa, he was born about the year 27. That doesn't really matter. But he was uh, a part of the Herodian dynasty, the Herods. Y'all remember the Herod that wanted to kill Jesus? Y'all remember all the Herods? Okay, the Herod dynasty, the Herodian dynasty, ruled from about 39 B.C. to 92 A.D. Okay, and they were a ruling class. They were what were called client kings. Okay, they were, you know, lived there in Judea. They lived in what uh, was that time Israel, the land of Israel, which included some of Syria and Jordan and Lebanon and, and, uh, and, and, and uh, the, the, the Palestinian uh, uh, territories. And, and so in that part of the world, the Herods ruled, but they were client kings. That means that the Roman government was the real power and they were just like puppet kings for the Roman government. And they were appointed there because they knew the people. They understood the people. They were born there, raised there. They knew what was going on. They knew the Jewish history. And that's the way that the Roman government liked to do. They liked to put in client kings that understood the people. And the people understood and liked them. So those were the Herods. This guy, King Agrippa, is a part of the Herodian dynasty. He is the son of Agrippa I. And then the fourth person we're going to see, now there's Governor Festus, okay? Number two, there's the Apostle Paul. Number three, King Agrippa. And number four, a lady named Bernice. But we're going to call her Bernice tonight because that's easier for me to say, okay? And it's spelled Bernice. So there's Bernice. Now, at, at first reading of this you may think that King Agrippa and Bernice are husband and wife. It just reads like that, okay? King Agrippa and Bernice came to visit Festus. They came to visit Festus in Caesarea in about the year A.D. 59 or 60. King Agrippa is 33 years old. Bernice is 31 years old. The Apostle Paul is about 55 years old. He's seen a lot, the Apostle Paul has. But 
What is happening here, as we read it, it looks like they're husband and wife, but they aren't. They're actually brother and sister. Now, knowing that will help us later to understand why the Apostle Paul is doing what he's doing. But we wouldn't know that if we didn't follow some of the rules of hermeneutics to actually go and study history. Because the Bible's not going to tell you they're brother and sister. But history knows their brother and sister. Bless this young girl Bernice's heart. Her dad, Agrippa I, married her to a man named Alexander, a prominent man named Alexander, when she was about 12 years old. Alexander lived a couple of years, and he died. So when she's about 14, maybe 15, daddy, she went back to daddy, Daddy, Agrippa I, married her to her uncle, Agrippa I's brother, who was Herod of, you know, ruler of an area in northeast Palestine. She was married to her uncle for four years. He died. He died in about the year A.D. 48. Well, it was that same year that her brother, who was young and who really needed to, uh, to get some ruling under his belt, if he was going to ever grow up to be a Herod, okay, uh, that the emperor Claudius, I don't want to bog you down with too many details, appointed him as the guy in charge of the temple in Jerusalem. He was the superintendent. That's what Claudius called him. He appointed him to be the superintendent of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. And so here this Agrippa, a young boy, is getting some opportunity to be in charge of stuff for the Romans over the Jews, and he's learning all the Jewish temple stuff and all the Jewish religious stuff to boot. Not a bad deal. And then in A.D. 50, after he had been the superintendent of of, of the temple in Jerusalem, in A.D. 50... King Agrippa, or Agrippa, before he was king, was promoted to be the Herod over the same territory that his uncle used to be Herod over. And when he moved there, guess what? His sister moved in with him. And sad to say, but read it in history, they were having an incestuous relationship. Brother and sister, living together. Everybody knew it. Everybody knew what was going on. And they were ruling the province. Well, they lived together and ruled for a little while. And then Bernice found another man that she liked. And so that she went over and married the king of Cilicia. She stayed with him for two or three years. But she really got to missing her brother. And on top of that, her brother had been promoted to king. He had become King Agrippa. So she went back to brother and just went ahead and just abandoned and, 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 and left the king of Cilicia who had converted to Judaism during the time he was with her because she had such a Jewish influence. And so he just, and, 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 but she goes back to brother and starts living with brother again. Now later on in her life, she's also going to become the consort and you know, the girlfriend of Vespasian who later became the emperor of Rome. And while she was sleeping with the Roman commander Vespasian, 
while he was fighting with the Jews and, and, and uh, conquering the Jewish land in A.D. 77, 78, 79. She was also sleeping with his son, Titus. Now, Bernice has a real messed up life. Okay? But bless her heart, we should be very sad for her. I mean, come on now. She was married off at 12. And then she was married off second time to her uncle. And I mean, come on now. Bless her heart. I mean, what, 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 that's got to kind of really mess you up a little bit. Okay? Now, the Apostle Paul knows all of this. This is not a secret. Everyone in all of Israel and all of the Roman Empire knew this was going on. This was not something that was hidden or done in secret. Okay? Uh, the, the, there weren't that many people in the world at that time anyway. Uh, and, and so it's, you know, I mean, here they are showing up in Caesarea in A.D. 59 or 60. Brother and sister living together as, as lovers, ruling a province of Rome. They have a lot of power and will have a lot of power. Agrippa's not going to die until the year 100. And so Festus is wanting to be careful here he does not, I mean, he's the new governor. He wants to make sure that he includes everybody. He doesn't want to upset the Jews, and he doesn't want to upset, you know, the, 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 the Herodian dynasty. I mean, they've been in power now for a lot of years. And so he invites him into his home. And this is where uh, we saw in Acts chapter 25. Uh, where in, in, in verse 13, and after some days, King Agrippa and Bernice came to Caesarea to greet Festus, the new governor. Okay? Now, as I said, it doesn't say, I mean, you just, at face value, at face reading, you would just think they're a husband and wife. Okay? I mean, that's, that's probably what 95% of preachers in the world believe, maybe 99% of the preachers in the world, because they, they, it, it just doesn't read any different. Okay, that would be a reasonable assumption. But when you read the Word of God, you don't want to make assumptions. Okay. Verse 23 of chapter 25. So the next day, when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp and had entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city, at Festus' command, Paul was brought in. So the Apostle Paul is going to be brought in to make his personal defense before King Agrippa and his sister Bernice, who are living in incest, and also Festus, who Festus is more concerned about, you know, uh, covering himself and making sure he doesn't get in trouble with anybody. He doesn't know. Uh, Festus knows nothing about Jewish affairs. He is completely blank. He doesn't understand what's going on. He doesn't know. He's a new kid on the block. He hadn't been here before. He's the governor. He's afraid he's going to mess up, doesn't know what he's doing. And here, King Agrippa and Bernice know everything about all the Jewish affairs and everything that's going on in the country for years. And they, 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 they know all of this stuff that's going on between the Jews and the Christians and, 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 and everything, okay? Now, the Apostle Paul, at this point, being brought before the high commander of, of you know, this, this Herod, this king, Agrippa, 
He could have. The apostle Paul was, 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 you know, he was under sentence of death. The Jewish leaders wanted to kill him. And he could have used this moment to beg for his life. He could have used this moment to do a lot of things, to say I've been wrongly, uh, but you know what he does? Knowing that he is about to be in the presence of some of the most notorious sinners in all of his world, knowing that he is about to be in the presence of people who are desperate, they need God. They need, they know about God. They know about the things. My goodness, Agrippa has been the superintendent of the temple in Jerusalem. He knows as much about Jewish religion. Bernice had even converted and would convert, had converted one of her husbands to Judaism. I mean, these guys know what's going on, but they don't know him. They know about him, but they don't know him. And the Apostle Paul, instead of begging for his life, he sees a chance to get these people born again. Now, this is the big story of Acts chapter 26. Is that even in his critical moment, even when things are, are going tough for the Apostle Paul, he never loses sight of the witness that he needs to be for people who are lost. God is not afraid of sinners. And neither should we be. God is not afraid and he is not embarrassed by people's sin. He wants to walk right up to it. And he wants to touch their heart and change their life. He loves them. God loves Agrippa and Bernice. And you'll not find one person on this planet without regard to what they have done and even without respect to what they will do. You will not find one person on this planet that God does not love and will not save. And God is the one that works on the hearts of men and women. It is God that prepares people to hear a word. Just, just I mean, walk out into any, any, walk out into our parking lot. Do you know, in the smallest crack in our parking lot, we will have a blade of grass growing up. How? Why? Because a seed got in that crack. And I'm here to tell you that sinners are filled with cracks. <laughs> okay? Their lives are so open. No matter how much they resist, no matter how hard they try. The book of Romans in the first chapter says that a man has to deny his own conscience to say that he does not believe in God. This is what Paul is going to tell Agrippa. He's going to tell him, I know you know. Wow. Paul is going to focus here. He's going to stay focused on the opportunity he has to make a difference in someone else's life. Even if it cost him his own, he understands that this is a rare opportunity to stand in front of 
such sinners. Woo! <laughs> Sound like a party to me. Chapter 26, verse number one. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself. He said in verse 2, I think myself happy. I'm happy to get to stand before you, you sinner. You, you, you know, you horrible person, you. Man, you are wicked. I am so happy to get to stand in front of you. You don't know how excited I am to be here. Woo! Glory to God. <laughs> I'm over-dramatizing this a little bit, but you get the picture. <laughs> because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused, accused by the Jews, especially because you are an expert in all the customs and the questions which have to do with the Jews. You know, you, now, oh, Festus over there sitting beside you, he... He's just, you know, dumb as a stump. But you're an expert. You're, you know, oh yeah. Therefore, I beg you, I implore you, I beseech you to hear me patiently. Hold on. Let me get to my conclusion. Okay? Let me take this. Just let me run with it a little bit. So the Apostle Paul begins by, you know, telling them who he is, giving him a little of his own credibility. And, uh, and, and he says in verse 6, And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. He said, now you know all about this. You know all about what God promised us through Moses. You know all about God said he was going to send this prophet. He's going to send me. You know, you know all about this. And that's why I'm standing here. I'm standing here because uh, of the hope that God made to our fathers, the promise that God made. Verse 8, he says this to Agrippa. He knows Agrippa knows all about this. Bernice knows and understands this. He says, why should it be thought incredible by you, King Agrippa, that God raises the dead? <laughs> I mean, come on now. It's, it's not an, an incredible thing. You know, you've been around you know, the stories, you, 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 you've heard the, the word, you've heard the prophets, you've heard the Psalms, you've heard the Proverbs, you've, you know, you've heard the law of Moses. It, it, it's not incredible. You've heard the prophets. You know God has done this before. Why should it seem, you know, impossible? Uh, you know, he was pointing out, you know, uh, uh, others who had, who, who had raised the dead. Why should it seem impossible to you that God would raise the dead? He's, he's, he's saying, you know, it's not. You understand that's, that's something God can do. Indeed, he said, I myself, I was in a place one time where I thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He said, now I know where, where, where these religious leaders are coming from. And I understand because I was right in that place myself. In fact, he goes on to tell him that whenever they stoned people and killed them, I was right there consenting to their death. In fact, I hunted them down in every city and I brought them back and put them in jail and I was testifying against them and we were executing Christians just for believing in Jesus. He said, listen, I know where they're coming from. And you know I know and I know you know I know and you know. He said, in fact... You know, I worked for the Jewish leaders. 
Verse 12, while thus occupied, as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priest, at midday, O king, along the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, Paul is just giving his testimony of how he got saved. Now, I, listen, I was so much against Christians, but I'm going to tell you what happened to me. I was going my way to find some and put them in jail and, and, and have them punished and executed. And while I was going, this Jesus, living Jesus, appeared to me and spoke to me. And he, he said to me, verse 16, Rise and stand on your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you, to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Okay, now listen to where Paul was going. Paul said, now listen to me until I get, until I get to where I'm going. Look at where he was going. It, it was verse 18. He said, now this is what Jesus told me. Now realize here the apostle Paul is going to give steps to salvation because he knows he knows that Almighty God is the only one that could have him standing in front of the king and Bernice. And he knows that they are in desperate need of salvation. He knows that they're wicked and they're powerful. He knows that they're bound to be miserable. He knows they've gone through so much heartache and heartbreak. My goodness, this young lady has been married three times since she was 12 years old. She's lost two husbands to death, and, 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 and a third one she has abandoned to return to an incestuous relationship with her brother so that she could live in some type of comfort and peace and security in her own mind. Her father had, had given her away not once but twice for political advantage. He understands the desperation of their lostness and their hurt and their pain. These, this is a king and a queen, but these are not happy people. These are not people who are filled with joy. These are not people who, who have anything to look forward to or can even perhaps even stand their own thoughts as they lay up on their beds at night wondering how in the world did I get to this place? What is going on and where am I going? Because there's nothing left for me in my future but more of this horrible past. He understands that these people are in need and I think that sometimes we fail to understand that we have a privilege when God stands us in front of someone who may not be 
the perfect picture of the most holy saint. They might be a committed sinner. Ooh, we ought to go, yippee, yippee. I am so happy to be here today. Now, if you'll just listen to me patiently until I get to where I'm going, you know, and then he gave them his testimony. And he said, this is what Jesus said to me. Jesus said to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. This is what God has anointed me to do, he said. Jesus sent me to open the eyes of those who, who cannot see the glorious gospel of Christ, who cannot see the goodness of God, who cannot see, don't understand how much God loves them, how much God has a plan for their life. They don't understand how much he gave for their soul. They just don't see it. They're covered in sin, covered in hurt, covered in pain, covered in worry and fear, covered in the problems and the predicaments of life. They are so covered over that they cannot see. Their eyes are blind to the goodness of God. And here is an opportunity to love someone who's hurting, to love someone and share with someone and help someone who is desperate and has nowhere to turn. I'm so happy to be here in front of you today because Jesus sent me to open the eyes of those in just such a situation as you're in. So that you might be turned from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. You may not realize it, but Satan has a claim on your soul. There is a power when we speak the word of God. Let me take just a moment and step over here for a second while we're holding that. The prophet Elijah, it hadn't rained in a couple of years, and it's, it's, it's so dry, and there's a drought, and there's a famine, and people are dying everywhere. And God sends this prophet to a foreign city called Zarephath. And he sits down in the street near the well. Now, there's been a drought, but there must be a good well in that city. But there's no food. Along comes a woman who is a widow. She has it tough already. And she has one son. And here she is in the streets looking for some sticks so that she can find a few to make a fire so that she can take the last little handful, the last little you know, quarter cup of meal and mix it with the last tablespoon of oil that she has. And cook just a cake, a piece of cornbread. So that she and her son can share their last meal. And then she says, I have nothing else to do but die. We're going to eat our last meal and we're going to die together. That's her only hope. And this dirty, dusty foreigner sitting in the street of the city by the well comes up to her and says, Ma'am, you know, God sent me here. 
Oh, yeah, sure. Uh huh. Yeah, hold that sign up, you know. <laughs> Who would believe that? Not me. If you will make me a cake first, if you'll give me your last meal and your son's last meal, God said that he would take care of you until it rains and until you get more food. Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> okay, somebody comes to my office tomorrow and tells me that, I'm going to say, don't do it. You are too. Sounds like a scam to me. And it would have to anyone with the exception of one person, that widow. When it sounds like tin to everyone else, it sounded like gold to her. Why? Because God had already told Elijah some long time before, before he ever got to that city, he said, I want you to go to the city of Zarephath, for I have commanded a widow there to sustain you. You see, God had commanded this lady to sustain the prophet. She was unaware of it. She didn't know it. She had no idea. She wasn't out there looking for a prophet. She was out there looking for sticks. But she had been commanded by God, but she was unaware that the command of God had already come to her life. It was there. The word of God was already on the inside of her, but she was unaware of it. But when the prophet said to her, the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord had power in it. God's word has power. And when God's word is spoken, it awakens the command of God in this widow's life, and it gave her faith. And that faith that no one else could have had caused her to believe God's word and the command came alive and she made him a cake and brought it to him and she lived off that little oil and that little meal for another year and a half or so. It wouldn't have worked any other way and it wouldn't work for anybody else. But it would work for the one that God had been dealing with. All that she needed to wake up to, all she needed to have her eyes opened was the word of the Lord. It awakened the command of God. Well, Acts 17 and verse 30 says, God has commanded all men everywhere to repent. I take such confidence when I'm witnessing to someone on the streets or someone in, in a store. I get such confidence because I know that there is a command of God already resident in their life. And all I have to do is find that little crack and plant that seed and God will watch over it. And though we do not know how, the Bible says we wake and sleep and wake and sleep day and night and day and night. And even though we don't know how, God makes increase. It springs up and comes to life. And all of a sudden, eyes begin to open. And all of a sudden, people begin to turn. And that's what here the Apostle Paul is doing. He's planting a seed in them, hoping that God has released to command to them and he has a chance now to awaken the command of God in their life and God is certainly dealing with King Agrippa right here 
He says to open their eyes and, 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 and to turn, you know, uh, from, the, from the power of, 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 you know, from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive. That's the whole hope he has is that, is that King Agrippa and, and those that are listening would receive. They could receive forgiveness and inheritance among those that are sanctified. How? By faith in Jesus Christ. It comes by faith, and, and, and the Word of God awakens that faith like it did in that widow. It gave her faith to do something that was, that was crazy, that was impossible. You know, it seems to so many people now uh, in the world, so many people, you know them, you work with them, you go to school with them, you're around them. It seems crazy. It seems impossible to them that God could reach into their moment and help them and change their life. It must have seemed impossible to them that God even wanted them in his boat, that God even loved them or cared about them. But this is the marvelous message of chapter 26 is that God loves everyone. And if we did not understand how deep in sin these two people were and how how horrible their lives have been, then we would not understand that the Apostle Paul has but one goal, and that is to put the gospel of Jesus Christ at the forefront of his defense and to lift up Jesus, to not say how bad it is or how bad you are or how a sinner you are or you ought to be ashamed of yourself, but rather to say, God has sent me, Jesus told me to bring the gospel so that I might open the eyes and I might turn the hearts and people might receive forgiveness and that they might inherit by faith in Jesus. Wow. Well, I'm ranting and raving here. So let me conclude with this. Verse 27. After he says that, Paul looks at Agrippa and says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? Boy, there you go. You cut to the chase. Do you believe? Woo. I know you do believe, he said. I already know that God's been working on the inside of you, and I already know that you believe. Then Agrippa said to Paul, hold on, whoo, almost, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. My goodness, God was working on this man. The best we can ever do is to give people who need Jesus a chance to hear the word. Paul's not saying, set me free, let me go, take me out of these chains. You know, I want out of jail. Paul is saying, you need Jesus. Do you believe? I know you believe. Oh, Paul, Paul, I, I feel like I'm just about to become a believer in Jesus Christ. Paul said, I, I would to God that not only you, but all those that hear me today, Bernice and all these prominent men you brought with you and Festus, that all of you, that what happened to me might happen to you. That the change in life that happened to me, the turning of my life from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, I pray that you would receive that same forgiveness and inheritance by faith in Jesus. I wish that you were like me, except for these chains. I know you know, he said. I know you believe.